Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and descended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, August 5th, we are studying Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. Samson's sins finally catch up with him. His weakness for women proves to be his undoing in this chapter. His unfaithfulness in the ways of marriage finally leads him to unfaithfulness toward the Lord. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. It's great to be here. As we get started today, Pastor Hill, let's let's talk Samson in general. We're here toward the end of his account, probably one of the more familiar parts of his story. What do we need to know about Samson as a character in the book of Judges going into the text for today? Well, the judgeship of Samson is recorded for us in chapters 13 through 16 of the book of Judges. He's arguably one of the most well-known of the judges. And what we're reading today, the account of he and Delilah and the cutting of Samson's hair is probably the most well-known fact about Samson. So we're in a text today that is going to talk about what's most familiar, although we'll probably look at it from a couple different angles and see things that we've maybe never seen. But what we'll remember about Samson is that he is a man of great strength. He is a man who uh, owes his strength to the fact that from the womb, God had called him to be a Nazarite from birth. We'll remember that uh, there is a Nazarite vow prescribed in the covenant where someone would let their hair uh, grow very long, where they would abstain from drinking of wine and have other um, rules upon them. And it would be a way of showing that they were set apart were holy for the Lord. Yet Samson is given this task from his very uh, origin story where we hear about uh, his barren parents um, who are miraculously told that they will receive him and that he's to be set aside for the purpose ultimately of judging the Israelites. And we'll remember, of course, that the judges were those um, who are not like magistrates sitting in a court of law today, but more like, uh, as we have in Texas anyway, county judges, Hmm. executives, um, those who uh, were rulers before the time of the kings arose. So he's going to come about and be one who is tasked by God with causing the wayward people of Israel to um, come and follow Yahweh much more closely again, to have a time of repentance after they as a people have been brought low. But what we'll find in his own life is that he struggles with similar sins that the people of God as a whole struggled with in their history. Um, So in a sense, we see that he is not by any means the best moral example to God's people. Um, But nonetheless, he is remembered very much for his feats of great strength um, and his warring against the Philistines. When you think about Samson in terms of the broader scriptural narrative, I think one of the places you see a a comparison is, as you were saying, he commits a lot of the same sins. He's got a lot of the same failings as the people of Israel, both at his time and throughout their history. Where else do you see Samson or a mirror of Samson in the scripture? Some have tried to make comparisons to him and the work of our Lord, which I think is always fair when we're thinking about the Old Testament. We want to draw connections to Jesus. But maybe the connection with Samson isn't quite to Jesus himself, but with with someone else in Christ's life. Yeah, we talk a lot in uh, interpreting the Old Testament about something called typology, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with, but it doesn't hurt to talk about once again. And typology is this idea, uh, just as a typewriter has a uh, arm that swings forward and puts um, a letter on a page, you have um, almost a form or a mold of something that you see maybe once in the Old Testament and then again in the New. So we might say that David is a type of Christ and that he is the great king and that Jesus comes later as Um, one who has echoes of David in his own ministry. So David would be the type, and Jesus would be what we call the antitype. 
well, a lot of people like to get carried away with this idea of typology and, and they learn about it and all of a sudden, you know, they say everything's a type of Christ. And they might say, well, Samson's a type of Christ because he dies. Um, and when he dies, it helps out his people, um, Israel. And, and there are some connections, I suppose, with Jesus there, but I like to think of Samson almost as an anti-type, not an anti-type, like the other one we talked about earlier. I'm saying he's almost the opposite of Christ in one interesting way. When we talk about the life of Christ, we often say that Christ can be seen as Israel reduced to one. We can see that Christ does certain things in his ministry that echo the movements of the ancient people of Israel uh, in the entirety of their history. So, for example, he in his infancy escapes um, death in Egypt and then comes back out of Egypt and God calls his son out of Egypt back to the promised land, retracing the steps of ancient Israel. And we can see that ultimately he's Israel reduced to one by becoming the Lamb of God and the final Passover Lamb on the cross. So we say Jesus is Israel reduced to one in the sense of all of the positive things about God's Old Testament people. You know, I think Samson is, in a sense, Israel reduced to one in the sense of many of the negative aspects. We see in Samson an impulsiveness, um, a, a ability to lash out, an ability to forget his vows to the Lord, um, and a weakness that we'll see for women and that weakness for women is language that God often employs in calling out his Old Testament people um, in their infidelity towards him as their own God. So in the same way that Samson or others might go after women that don't belong to them by, uh, by a sacred marriage, um, God's own people went after other gods that were not Yahweh, not the one who had called that people to be his bride. So I guess the most clear way I'd say it is Jesus is Israel reduced to one in the best sense. Mm. And in some ways, Samson is Israel reduced to one in the worst. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a helpful way of looking at Samson's account as a whole, and particularly what we will see today in chapter 16. We're not going to read quite the whole chapter, most of it here. Again, this is one of the more familiar parts of Samson's narrative. So let's, let's jump in. Judges 16, beginning at verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. All right, we'll stop there. So, Pastor Hill, in this text, there's parts that are very similar to what we've seen Samson do already. We've talked about his, his feats of strength. And we've seen Samson's relationship with women throughout his account. But this time, one of the things that's new is that he specifically goes to a prostitute. And this is where we would... One of the things I think Samson is well known for is his sexual sin. So what do we see here from Samson in these first three verses? Well, we have to realize that this is coming on the heels of the account of Samson's marriage. Um, Samson had uh, chosen to marry a, a Timnite woman, which would have been a Philistine woman. And we're told earlier in his account that this was actually something that his parents didn't think was good, but actually God was planning that to give Samson an ability to uh, have an inside uh, means of attack to the Philistines. Well, what happens in that whole story is Samson gets angry. And on the seventh day of the marriage feast, before the sun goes down, it says he storms away in anger from that marriage feast. And if we understand the marriage practices in those days, the seventh day of the feast would be the night upon which um, that marriage would be consummated sexually between the uh, husband and the wife. So he leaves before that happens. Um, so this is an opportunity for us to see that where he ran away at the last moment from what would have been uh, a true marriage, he now falls to the depths of depravity in finding a prostitute for his sexual impulses. We see here it says he went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute and he went into her. 
Um, we don't need to be too graphic, but that's just a euphemism clearly to say that he committed sexual sin with her. He wasn't going to visit her in the way that the spies did in the days of uh, Jericho before it fell um, with Rahab and going in, in there to visit with her. He didn't go see the prostitute like Jesus does. When Jesus sees a prostitute, what does he do? Calls her to repentance and, and extends his word of grace and forgiveness. Instead, Samson has fallen to the most base of impulses and has transacted um, money for sex here uh, in a way that, that makes him a terrible example. So we have this example of his weakness that shows us that this is his Achilles heel, so to speak. Um, and then the reason that this account is given to us here is that it's also paired now with another act of his great strength. So we see his weakness morally, his weakness in following God's ways, and he thinks he can offset it in pride by his great fear, uh, by his great physical strength. Before we move quite on to the the physical strength here, just to and, and not to excuse Samson by any means, his falling into sexual sin here is is not excusable. But the way that you framed it, it maybe does seem more like a a crime of passion, a crime of impulse, rather than necessarily. I think the way that Samson sometimes gets portrayed as a philanderer all along, as if this is a part of his entire story. Granted, his his arranged marriage to the Philistines, while God was working in the background, was not something that the Lord had desired for his people to intermarry with these pagan nations. But he was going to get married. He was going to do that lawfully in that sense. And here now, he's having been foiled in that, he's burning with passion. And it seems that he, again, not to excuse it, but to say he, he falls into it and it now becomes a trap to him, maybe than rather being something that was a part of his character all along. Yeah, it is not good for a man to be alone, uh, it mm. says in the scriptures, um, because we do have um, burning passions within us that need to be directed in the, the way that God tells us it's holy to be directed, which is within a marriage and within a marriage alone. But there is a certain amount of understanding, I suppose, we can have for Samson here. Um, the other question is, is this a repetitive behavior that he exhibits? Uh, or is this his first fall in this way? Because we'll remember earlier on, he's a young man, he comes of age, he finds a woman to marry. That um, doesn't work out because of his impulsiveness. Actually, that wife was given to the best man because mm -hmm. they thought he had abandoned her and utterly despised her. So in his, his anger, this may very well not be um, a repetitive behavior at this point, but it may be his first fall into this area of sexual sin. Mm. Um, so we have to, to realize that, that the devil is uh, very cunning and that one of the ways that he goes after God's people um, is to, to tempt them in this manner. And Samson should have been able to um, walk the other way or not have sought out this type of thing. Uh, but we see that like many in the world, he did not. Right, yeah, he does He does fall into this sin, which he should not have done. Now, the Lord, once again, is going to take this from Samson and use it for his own good. So that takes us to the, the feat of strength. Now, he's in Gaza, which is among the Philistines, and the Philistines find out that he's there. They're going to try to ambush him. It sounds like Samson finds out about it so somehow, and then well, what, what does he do? What's the significance of, of the feat of strength he performs here? So they think that he's going to be there until the morning, which would be quite natural in those days um, that, that one would spend the night in the home of the prostitute um, all the way till the morning. Um, he somehow senses at midnight that something is amiss. And if the Gazites are out there thinking they've got till morning time, perhaps their guard is down and Samson um, goes outside and he picks up the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts. Now you've got to realize cities in those days were protected by city walls. Um, it was their sense of security. In fact, it was what people looked to with pride to say, you know, someone who means us harm can't get in here because we've got such a heavy door. I envision, and it wouldn't have been exactly like this, but I envision those pictures of blasted doors that you see sometimes in military facilities. Um, this is gonna be as heavy as they could have made to hold off people who meant them harm. And he just goes and he picks it up. I picture a man, um, 
you know, doing a, a lift of some kind of big weights. You know, the one where they pick it up and just do it, put it over their shoulders or those squats. I don't know. I don't spend much time at the gym, <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's what I picture. And he walks with it. Now, it says he goes and he takes it uh, to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron, which is Gaza to Hebron is um, 40 miles. Hmm. Now, it doesn't mean that he took it all the way to the city. Um but likely within the line of sight, the hill that was in front of Hebron from their view, there's a hill somewhere along that road, and it's the highest point on the journey, and he sets it down up there as a sign of his strength and the fact that they have no defenses against Samson and ultimately against the Israelites, and that the Philistines' strength that they think they have is, is truly nothing in comparison to his. Hmm. It, all of this, I think, fits very well with everything we've seen from Samson so far, in that he's been able to rely upon his great strength to get away with stuff that, you know, you or I, who don't go to the gym, we couldn't get away with. And and I think, so let, let's just say for the sake of argument that this is his first fall into sexual sin. So he's he's fallen into sexual sin, and he's gotten away with it again. It It seems that it adds to a level of pride, cockiness maybe, that is going to lead forward into his downfall coming up as we continue into the text. What do you think? Are you saying that people in power might act in a way that we wouldn't ever allow someone who had no power to act and will just look the other way when we see it? I think so. <laughs> I think that may be a very true dynamic and a dynamic that's true uh, throughout all time. So the more he gets away with it, the more bold he becomes. Um, you know, what could he have done after um, this episode with the prostitute in Gaza? Um, he could have repented. Mm. He could have could have turned back to the Lord. He could have recognized his sin. Um, but instead, he believes that he, on his own, um, is of such a stature that the rules don't apply to him or that mm. that he can do what he pleases because he's strong. And, and that type of pride that Samson has by the end of our section today is going to be completely stripped away from him. Mm, yeah, he believes that on his own he can do those things, and, and that's, that's where he gets himself into trouble. So let's, let's keep going here in the text. We're in verse 4 now, so Judges 16, verse 4. After this, he, Samson, loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. All right, we'll pause there. So let's let's talk first, Pastor Hill, about Delilah. Again, when we think of Samson, we often talk Samson and Delilah. The name is well known, but from the text here, what do we actually know? Who is this Delilah? Well, the first thing that we can look at is where Delilah is found. And it says that she is found in the Valley of Sorek. And what we know about that is that that lays kind of on the boundary between the Philistines' territory and, Philist and, and territory that was in the possession of the Israelite tribe of Dan. So it's a borderland, um, and it depends exactly where in that valley she lived as to whether she would be a Philistine or an Israelite. Now, I tend to believe that she is not a Philistine, although oftentimes she is portrayed that way. You see, the Valley of Sorek is also close to Samson's hometown, and perhaps he's gone back to a more familiar area amongst his own people, and perhaps he has let his guard down a bit, and perhaps he's found a woman who is of his own people. And it says here that unlike when he visits the prostitute in Gaza, there it says he went into her. Here it says he loved her. And there's a different relationship, a different 
desire uh, and dynamic at play. The other reason that I think Delilah is likely an Israelite rather than a Philistine is that she is the only woman in uh, the entire life story of Samson in the Bible where her name is given, her proper name. Even the woman he was going to marry in Timnah, her name isn't given to us. And Delilah itself is a Hebrew name. And that Hebrew name uh, means delicate. So I think those little pieces of information let us know, not with 100% certainty, but but with a good amount of confidence that she likely was from his own people and, and he therefore likely had a trust for her that he wouldn't have had if she'd been a Philistine. Hmm. Now, what about Delilah? I think in many minds, and sometimes in my own, we hear the word Delilah and we think prostitute because she's mentioned in the context of the prostitution just previously. But should we think that Delilah is herself a prostitute? Well, that's a complicated question. Um, not in the most um, open sense of the word. I, I don't believe there was any money that changed hands between her and Samson. It doesn't seem to be that way in the text. Um, but I suppose in a looser definition, she proves herself to be, um, because we see here that she's going to accept money from the lords of the Philistines to betray him, and the means by which she's going to have to gain his confidence and and find out his great secret is exactly what the lords of the Philistines said. She will have to seduce him. Um, so it does seem as if she will be exchanging um, her own uh, sexuality for money. It's just uh, a more complicated transaction um, with another party involved. Mm. And, and so perhaps more than, I mean, certainly the, the overtones of prostitution are there, not in the classic sense, but in the way that you laid out. But more important than that, then, assuming she is in fact an Israelite, would be the sense of betrayal toward her own people. Exactly, exactly. She is going to be an insider who is going to go to the most powerful man uh, of her own people and and make a trade-off of not only her sexuality, but also of those she loves. If she aids the Philistines in finding a way to subdue Samson, well, Samson's not the only one who suffers. Um, many more will die. Uh, many more will be um, put to great shame if the Philistines prevail. Now, why would she do it? Well, money, 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 money. And it says 1,100 pieces of, of silver. Well, it was more than that, really, because it says each of the lords of the Philistines would give her that much. And back in chapter 3, verse 3, it lays out the lords of the Philistines, and there are five of them. So you've got 5,500 pieces of silver. And um, just look into some study notes, that works out to about 15 years of wages. The medium uh, household income in America right now is $61,937. In today's money, it's just shy of a million dollars that she is being offered to betray Samson. And um, there are many people who normally would live a fairly upright life, I guess. But when you give them that kind of money, um, the morals are now off the table. Hmm. Yeah. And, and to think, I mean, it's again, it's easy to, to say, well, I, I would not have betrayed my people that way. But how often do we say something like that when we read accounts like, Peter denying his Lord, or Judas betraying his Lord in the New Testament. I would never have done that. And, and yet, when you put it into those modern terms, goodness, that's it's almost a million dollars that she's being offered here. How well could she live on that? It's tempting. And I think, I mean, just thinking of Samson, his entire account, this text particularly, and Delilah too, that's a, a, an important warning for us. Don't. How, how does the apostle put it? Let, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And I think you see that both for Samson and Delilah within this text. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, they both made decisions that ended up causing the, the story to play out in the way that it does in this great tragedy. Mm. So we're, we're running close to the break here, Pastor Hill, but I think we've got enough time to at least begin to look at this first attempt. So Delilah is, is going to accept this offer of 5,500 pieces of silver, almost a million dollars, speaking in modern terms, and she's got to figure out a way to determine Samson's strength. So take us into her, her first attempt, this matter of, of being bound with seven fresh bowstrings. Well, the first attempt is pretty simple. She walks up to him. She knows that he loves her, and she just asks, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one could subdue you. She is asking him to betray 
the the secret that everyone knows he has. They know his strength lies somewhere. No one's been able to figure it out. And she hopes that because of this love that he has for her, that he will just give up the secret. Now, he doesn't. Um, he deceives her, and he says these seven fresh bowstrings will do it. Uh, ultimately, they won't. Um, and what we see here is I think Samson's love of um, toying with people. Earlier in the Samson narrative, uh, he toyed with um, the guests at the wedding by giving them a riddle to solve. Um, and he uh, seemed to delight in the fact that he knew the answer to the riddle and no one else did. And we have a similar dynamic here. Now, it does say that then she's provided with those bowstrings and that she binds him with them. And we want to understand the, the, the way the stage is set here. Samson thinks he's alone with Delilah. But Delilah has Philistine men lying in ambush, ready to pounce. Now, as soon as he's bound, what, what Delilah does is she yells out to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And Samson immediately breaks those bonds, snaps the bowstrings, and she realizes it's not the truth. Now, this whole time, these men have been lying in wait um, to come out and take him captive, but they don't come out. Um, the, the way that she says the Philistines are upon you, Samson must believe is a joke. Or maybe this first time he believes is the truth and breaks off those bonds and then realizes from his perspective that she's, she's playing with him, toying with him in the same way that he's been toying with her by not telling the secret. The whole time the Philistines are there and ready, and they'll be there ready um, through the other attempts as well. So they know something that he doesn't know, whereas he is delighted in the fact that he thinks he knows something that they're unaware of. Mm. So we're seeing a bit of a game of cat and mouse here between Samson and Delilah. It's just getting started in the text, which we will pick up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron, looking at Judges chapter 16 this morning. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, August 5th. We are studying Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. We've got Pastor Nate Hill with us. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we looked at this game of cat and mouse that starts between Samson and Delilah. He thinks he knows something. Well, he does know something that they don't know, but she knows something, and the Philistines know something that Samson doesn't know, and he he's unaware of that for the time being. He's succeeded so far in his game of riddle playing right now. The first attempt to find out his strength was foiled, but Delilah is not finished. So we continue to read in Judges chapter 16. Now we're in verse 10. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. We'll pause there. So two more attempts. Both of them failed. A lot of similarities to what we read in the first failed attempt, Pastor Hill, but, but what are some of the features of these two that we should point out? 
Yeah, so I think the first two attempts, the one we had before the break and the first of the two that you read now, hang together. Not a lot of difference. Um, the difference is bowstrings in the first one and new ropes in the second. Uh, it does specifically tell us in the text that in both of those cases, the men are lying in ambush in an inner chamber waiting to prevail upon him. So it seems like a similar setup, um, and it's just not the diameter of the rope that made the difference, essentially. Um, and we can sense Delilah getting frustrated each time and complaining to him, essentially saying that you are mistreating me by lying to me. And I'm sure she, she complained to him quite a bit. Um, and if it's true that he loved her, um, it probably did hurt his heart to some extent that she felt this way. Now, not enough yet for him to uh, tell her the truth. Now, when we get to this third attempt, which is the second one we read here after the break, we see a little bit of difference. He finally reveals to her at least the fact that his hair is involved. They're in the ballpark now. He says that you have to weave the seven locks of his head with a web and fasten it tight with a pen and he'll become weak like any other man. Now, <laughs> I guess to put this in modern terms, he said, if you put it in a man bun, um, you'll take away my uh, power. So um, apparently uh, that seemed like it might be the case to her. She believed it. Um, she put his hair in this particular hairdo or configuration and we get a different detail we don't get in other times. It says that Samson sleeps. I think Samson's trust for her is increasing and his guard against her is going down where we don't think he sleeps those first couple attempts. Now, the other side of it is maybe the Philistines are getting frustrated at this point because it doesn't specifically tell us that the Philistines were hiding in the inner chamber this time. I think it's possible this could have been a, a fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me thing from the Philistines' perspective, and they maybe weren't willing to come back for a third attempt. Maybe they gave up on her um, being able to find the secret, but she's still motivated, of course, um, by the bounty that they've offered her. Hmm. But in this attempt as well, um, it's all foiled by Samson. Hmm. So uh, Samson seems to be growing in his comfort with Delilah. His his pride, his arrogance is showing maybe a bit of naivete as well, that, that he just assumes that he's got this woman wrapped around his finger. That's not actually the case. Perhaps some frustration on the part of the Philistines, definitely some frustration on the part of Delilah as she continues to be foiled, but she seems to be getting closer and she's still not finished. So she's she's going to, to up the ante a bit as she continues. So in Judges 16, now verse 15. And she, Delilah, said to him, Samson, how can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. I think I'll, I'll pause there, Pastor Hill, before we read what happens then. So Delilah plays the trump card, I suppose. She, she plays the how can you say I love you card. This is very clearly a dysfunctional relationship at this point. It certainly is. Um, we are all aware of scenarios and relationships where someone will give the ultimatum. If you really love me, then you will hmm. fill in the blanks, right? Um, she is very clearly saying, um, you're going to tell me this or I'm going to leave you. Um, this is manipulation of the highest degree. And this is not the way um, in which uh, true love expresses itself. Um, and there are many um, modern examples of relationships that are very unhealthy today. And just uh, as a reminder to listeners, if uh, someone uh, with whom you are uh, involved that uh, you think is someone who uh, would be a good husband or a good wife someday, someone that a young Christian is dating, begins to say, well, if you loved me, then you would. Um, that's not the way love speaks. 
Now, as we uh, look here a little more closely, um, this is where he reveals to her the fact that he has been a Nazarite from birth. Um, I don't know if she would have understood that to be true before. Maybe she thought he was just a guy with long hair who was really strong. Uh, maybe she thought that his strength uh, was attributed to the amount of time he spent at the gym or the amount of protein that he ate. I don't know. But what he reveals is to say, actually, my strength isn't my own. My strength is the Lord's, and it's been given to me as a gift. It's been given to me because of this Nazarite vow, and without him, without this vow, this connection to the Lord, I'm nothing. Um, and he pours his heart out to her in such a way. So he has to um, show a great deal of trust to tell this to, to Delilah. Um, and I think he believes that uh, Delilah will maintain that trust. And what we see is that um, her true character is about to be revealed to him. Hmm. So the, the matter of the, the Nazarite vow, particularly as it pertains to his hair, that he was not to cut his hair as a part of this vow that had been made. And this was a lifelong thing for Samson. It, it happened from birth. This was what was told his parents back in chapter 13, that he would be a lifelong Nazarite. So the, the matter of his, his hair, and we'll see how that plays out in the, the last couple of verses here in just a few minutes. Well, does the hair have some kind of magical power? What, what's the deal with his hair? Yeah, the, the hair itself is, is, of course, the most visible symbol of the Nazarite vow. The other rules are that you're not to drink wine or the fruit of the vine, and you're not to come into contact with the dead. Um, and earlier when he actually scoops the honey out of the dead um, lion, that, that was another way that he had violated his vow, but not in such a, a clear way that people would see and that would be visible to all around. I guess in a way we might... Um, compare this to the distinctions that sometimes we make in the church between public and private sin. Mm. Um, a lot of times people will say, well, why does the church come down so much on this sin or that sin, and it doesn't seem to come down on the other? Um, and that will be uh, an accusation of hypocrisy. Well, the thing isn't that we enjoy speaking about particular sins more than others, or we think that some sin is worse, but if someone's fallen into adultery and everyone in the community knows it, it's public. If someone uh, struggles with um, thinking mean things about their neighbor, no one sees it. Um, so in such a way, like this is the visible thing that if, if his hair is cut, it's clear to the world that the symbol of his connection to is putting the line where the line is with Samson. Now, did Samson sin beforehand? Did he live a life of being consecrated and holy to the Lord this whole time up to now? No. But for some reason, it pleased God to have his favor to continue upon him. Um, but this is the line that God is setting. And it's not arbitrary. Um, it, it, it actually illustrates to us another thing about our lives. You know, when a Christian falls into sin, the first time you sin, does, does your faith wither and die and go completely away? Generally not. But with sin and its relationship to our faith, it's death by a thousand cuts. Um, and the deal is when we live in sin and continue in sin, it's not that God's keeping a tally and once we reach a threshold, he abandons us. It's that our faith and, and we despair of it. So here, I guess we can see a number of things, but we would definitely say it's not the hair itself. He can't weave it back into the stubble on his head. Somebody else can't make a wig out of it and put it on and have his strength. Um, it's, it's the means, the physical thing by which God was showing his connection and his favor upon Samson. I think that, that part about it was the means by which that connection was shown is, is the important thing. So the, what, what's the connection? It is the promise that God makes to Samson, his word, in other words. But he's attached that promise to a physical sign, and that physical sign in this case is Samson's hair. And so when Samson rejects that physical sign, he is doing so because he's actually rejected the word. It, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, I don't know, you, you may catch it, Pastor Hill, I'm not, but just for the sake of everyone, the point I'm trying, it's, it's very similar to the question in my mind in baptism in the catechism, how can water do such great things? Well, it's because the, the word is attached to the water. The word has been attached, in a sense, to Samson's hair. And so when he rejects this, He's rejecting the promise, and that is Samson's downfall. Does that make sense, Pastor Hill? 
It does. You know, obviously we wouldn't turn Samson's hair into some kind of Old Testament sacrament in the right. same way we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper today. But it is a reminder of the fact that God often uses physical means to accomplish his um, His will and his tasks in the world. So, um, yeah, this this shouldn't be a surprise to us that that God has attached the promise to a particular thing, in this case, Samson's hair. Right. So Samson has revealed his heart to Delilah. The narrator has told us that, and Delilah now realizes that as the text continues. So we're in Judges 16, now in verses verses 18 through the end of our text for today, verse 21. When Delilah saw that he, Samson, had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. That is the end of our text for today. That was Judges 16, verses 18 through 21. So, Pastor Hill, Delilah is pretty perceptive, it seems. She she recognizes now that Samson has finally told her the truth. Indeed, she does. She knows it, and she knows it with absolute certainty. She's got this intuition and understands that this is different than the other times. She understands it so much that she now calls these lords of the Philistines back up and says, now I've got it. The first two times, you know, you thought I cried wolf, but, but this time it's for real. And they come uh, and trust um, that that this is indeed the case. Now, she she has him fall asleep upon her knees with his head upon her lap, with his hair right there uh, for the cutting. Um, in his sleep, he is um, showing his uh, trust of her. He has no uh, reason in his mind to mistrust her that she would um, hand him over. Um, she calls a man over and has the man shave off the locks of his head. Now, that's interesting. I don't know why it is that she doesn't do it herself. Um, is there uh, a little bit of, of guilt? Well, maybe, but maybe not, because as soon as those locks are taken off of him, um, she begins to torment him. Mm. And she reveals herself uh, to have had no love for him ever to have only been falsely seducing him this entire time for the sake of money. And she mocks him to his face um, as his strength leaves. And then one last time, she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And I envision this in a slightly different tone because she knows that this is the end and outcome. Uh, the Philistines, as he wakes up thinking that he's going to be able to defeat them. Well, uh, that's not the case anymore because the Lord has left him. Now, the Philistines sees him, just as you would expect. And we could run over this next detail uh, too quickly, but they gouge out his eyes. Mm. Now, that's a terrible thing that I can't imagine. Um, but when you beat someone or you hurt someone, it's bad enough. But by gouging out someone's eyes, you're taking away one of their senses, one of their ways that they can perceive the world around them. And I don't think it's any kind of surprise here that it's the eyes that they gouge out because it's Samson's eye, his lustful eye, that has ultimately been his demise. And perhaps here we can also see that it's not just the judgment of the Philistines or the wrath of the Philistines against Samson that's at play, but perhaps it's also God's own judgment against Samson for his sin. By means of the Philistines, God is bringing down his wrath and his judgment upon Samson himself for the purpose of bringing him low and bringing him down to a place where there will be at least hope uh, for him to turn once again to the Lord. And then the final detail that we have here is that he's brought back into Gaza, the very place that he had shown his great strength by carrying away the gates and the doors. And now he comes back in, presumably through those same gates, in weakness and bound, and he's left in the prison, grinding at the mill, 
which uh, would have been about the lowliest position one could have, especially a strong man like Samson, because grinding at the mill in those days was pretty well universally um, women's work. And that is where Samson is left at the end of our section today. Hmm. So a, a couple of thoughts. Maybe I'll just start with where you ended. His humiliation at this point is is complete. He's doing the work of a of a woman in a mill. His eyes are gone, and he's he's likely been maybe he's even been led through those very gates that he carried off in pride. Now his I mean so he's gone from the very top down to the very bottom, which I, I think then leads into the other the other point I wanted to come back to was this matter of the fact that his eyes are gouged out, perhaps being a sign that this is not simply the vengeance of the Philistines. No doubt it was. But it's also a sign of God's judgment upon Samson for his forsaking of the vow that he had been given, for his forsaking faith toward the Lord. And I think that that's a good picture of what we talked about towards the very beginning of the show, that you see in Samson a picture of Israel reduced to one in the negative sense. So these sins that we see in Israel as a whole come to bear in, in Samson as well, and and so too the judgment of the Lord. How often in the book of Judges do we see the people of Israel in their pride forsake the Lord, start to worship other gods, and then what does the Lord do? He brings his judgment upon them through the hands of another nation. And that's exactly, it seems, what Samson is experiencing here. So we get, again, we're in the life of Samson. We're seeing a picture of the whole book of Judges in miniature, it seems. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's in losing his sight, being brought low, that he has the opportunity to to potentially see once again with the eyes of faith. Uh, in ancient literature, outside of the Bible, but it's interesting anyway, there's this idea that often um, those who have great spiritual insight are the blind. You know, mm-hmm. the, the oracles that would supposedly speak to um, speak to the um, the deities that people believed in in those days were often blind oracles. Well, here we can make some connection, at least, saying when we see things in the way of the world, when we view things in the way uh, that a normal person would view them, or with with earthly eyes, we often miss what God is truly doing um, in in reality that can only be perceived by the eyes of faith. Um, For example, in the midst of some kind of great catastrophe or pandemic, the world sees only terrible things taking place, but we in the Church might see that people once again are are open to hearing the Gospel in a way that they have been during a time of prosperity. Um, When people are brought low, like Samson is here and like like we may be from time to time, it's an opportunity for God to open our eyes. to, to what he wants to show us. Hmm. I, I'm, as you were talking there about the matter of, of someone who is blind, perhaps being able to see more truly the account in the New Testament in John chapter 9 of the man born blind, whom Jesus does f- his, physically heal, but, but then actually throughout that account comes to see truly who Jesus is with the eyes of faith. At the end of that, Jesus tells the Pharisees who have rejected both this man who'd been healed and Jesus himself, Jesus says to those Pharisees, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And, and so their their own sight has, has actually led them to be blinded to the truth of the Lord. Samson's sight, his, his pride, has led him to be blinded. Now he truly is blind. And, and as we will see in tomorrow's text, this becomes then that low point from which the Lord will, will actually raise Samson up once more to do a, a mighty deed. Again, not, not in the same way that Christ delivers, but, but in some sense a, a picture then of the—well, here again, to, to go back to that, that idea of Samson as a type of all of Israel— we're going to see in Samson's life a, a picture of how the Lord is going to to restore him, not in the same way that our, our Lord Jesus does all of all of his deeds, and I don't want to bleed over into tomorrow's text too much right now, but but we're seeing some of that, that from this low point, Samson now has the opportunity to to be humbled in repentance and to put his trust once more in the Lord. And I think, I think we'll see that come to bear. We, we don't want to excuse Samson's sins by any means, but we also don't want to to totally write him off as a man who is completely lost from the faith. Uh, what do you think, Pastor Hill? Yeah, I think Samson is a man who, uh, from birth, is given a uh, special connection to God as a gift, 
and he's given that connection in such a way that it's conferred upon him a really high status. Um, and then he finds that he has squandered it later on, and now he finds himself um, at his lowest point of life. Now, to draw some connections, um, many of us who were blessed with Christian parents and were baptized at a very young age can say, if not necessarily from birth itself, but from very, very young, from days old, um, many of us were given that very same, or, well, an even better status, a better connection with God in our baptism. And those of us who've come uh, into the Christian faith later in life certainly possess that as well now. It's not about when you receive it, but what you possess. And in baptism, you know, we see that the God's favor is upon us in a different way, not to give us physical strength, but but to adopt us as sons. Um, and we have have that special status, too. So when we look at Samson and we see that he's been brought low, I wonder if we can see a picture of what happens in the life of even the baptized um, when we stray and we fall away. And God does bring down his judgment upon our sins. And in Samson grinding at the mill, and Samson at his lowest moment, um, I see the, the way that many people have, have picked up their heads at a certain point in life and say, it's, it's all over now. Is there hope? Have I, uh, have I lost it all? Well, I think the message that the Scriptures clearly want us to say is that when we've been brought low, even if we had it all before, when one has strayed away from, from the faith, strayed away from church, strayed away from Christ, even though they were baptized at a young age and treasured it at one point, um, God is always ready to receive the repentant prayer of that person who now knows the depths of their sinfulness and now knows the, the depth of their need uh, for Christ and for forgiveness. So when I look at Samson at this state and, and I see him brought to the lowest, I remember one thing, is that his hair starts to grow back. Mm-hmm. And you'll talk more tomorrow, of course, about what happens next. But in the stubble of that hair growing upon his head, um, it's it's a, a picture of hope for restoration, even for Samson, just as there's hope for restoration through repentance and faith in Christ for those of us who find that our own sins have brought us uh, into a, a terrible place. Mm, death death to resurrection. This is the, the movement that our Lord gives to us throughout the Scriptures. It's what he does for Samson. It's what he does for us. And and in this moment of, of being brought low for Samson, there is that hope of restoration, hope of resurrection for, for Samson and for all who trust in Christ. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 21. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest this morning. Thank you. In Samson, we we see a picture of one whose pride gets in the way, who allows his status with God to make him proud, and he is brought low in that pride. Through Delilah, this is the work of, of God, judging his sins, and yet, and yet, in the hair that begins to grow back, there is hope, hope for restoration, Hope for forgiveness, hope for resurrection, found ultimately in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.